welcome to Fantastic History. I'm Sarah. And I'm Clay. We're a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history. Today, I'm going to do our first listener request episode. Really? Yeah. Some oh. Someone reached out to us and said they'd like to know more about the people who have gone over Niagara Falls. Oh. Yeah. That oh, sounded how... like it was right up our alley. That's really exciting. Yeah. I'm I'm thinking it'll be, it'll be a little fun. We'll laugh. We'll cry. It'll be, it'll be a good time. Cool. Uh, so the sources I used for this episode were NiagaraFallsInfo.com, HowStuffWorks, and History.com. Okay. I'm sure anyone listening is aware, but Niagara Falls straddles the border between Ontario, Canada, and New York State. It's actually three separate waterfalls, the most famous of which is Horseshoe Falls in Ontario. So that's the one where like Jim and Pam got married on the office. Mm-hmm. So it's where you'd go if you did like the Maid of the Mist tour or anything like that. Okay. So have you been to Niagara Falls? I have not. Oh, well, I have. So it sucks to be you. Oh. Mm. In the interest of full disclosure, I was six years old. Um, okay. So I don't really remember too much about it, but I'd love to go back. I do remember that it was like a lot of water. That was a <laughs> great kinda, big waterfall. Kind of yeah. what it's known for. Oh, yeah. Well, it was first seen by a European colonizer in 1678, a Franciscan monk named Louis Hennepin. Hennepin is actually a pretty interesting guy. Uh, he was born in modern day Belgium in a small village that was captured by Louis XIV of France when Hennepin was about three years old. After joining the Franciscan order, he worked primarily in hospitals, though he also did a brief stint as an army chaplain. When he was around 50 years old, he was recruited to join a scouting expedition to New France, which was an absolutely massive territory in North America that stretched all the way from Quebec down to Louisiana. Wow. Yeah, not too bad. During this trip, he became the first European to encounter Niagara Falls. Uh, but also the first European to encounter St. Anthony Falls in Minnesota, which is the only naturally occurring falls along the entire length of the Mississippi River. The only falls? That's the only one on the whole river. There's there's like some man-made ones now, yeah. but it's the only naturally occurring one. Whoa. Isn't that weird? That's that's pretty surprising, I, I guess. <laughs> I, you know, the Midwest is known for being pretty flat, so. Yeah, 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 yeah that's yeah, true. I guess there's that. He ended up writing uh, four books about his time in the Americas, but there's been a lot of drama over how much of what he put forth was actually true and how much of it was for the drama. 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 Uh, The 1913 edition of the Catholic Encyclopedia, which is apparently a thing, notes that Hennepin was denounced by many historians and historical critics as an errant falsifier. An errant falsifier. Well, I mean... That I don't know. It, it seems to be like more common, yeah, than not. Oh yeah. Well, maybe not. Maybe not. Not. But it seemed to be more common than we're, we have. We were taught in our I'm, youth. We're in the early twenties in our episodes, and this is the second one of mine where it's been like I don't know. This dude was probably just making stuff up. Yeah. Because we had that with um, woman chief. Yeah. So yeah, who knows? All these people coming over here and just putting down whatever because you're sending it back to France. Like all these people who are never going to make the journey. Like you yeah, just put whatever you want. Who's gonna know? You're just trying to sell copies, man. I get it. Okay. So let's fast forward a couple of centuries <clears throat> and really get into this. So in the last 170-ish years, more than 5,000 bodies have been recovered from the bottom of the falls. Mm. 
Sadly, an average of 20 to 30 people per year visit the falls specifically to complete suicide. But the vast majority of people have been either doing a stunt or made a deeply unfortunate mistake. Like, you know, you're trying to take a selfie and falling backwards into the water, you know, that kind of. One interesting thing to note is that nobody has ever survived going over either of the falls on the American side. Has never happened. Mm. It's horseshoe falls in Canada or nothing if you're looking to walk away from this. And this is like whether going over just yourself or going over in, inside of something. Right. Whether you're doing it on purpose or not, nobody has ever survived going over either of the American falls at Niagara. Oh. Yeah. So something to keep in mind. <clears throat> Now, although they never went over the falls, I do still want to talk about some of Niagara's first daredevils, tightrope walkers. Uh, The great Blondin, real name Jean-Francois Gravelet Blondin, was an internationally famous tightrope walker. His first walk across the falls was done in the summer of 1859, and it was a pretty standard tightrope walk, like exactly what you picture when somebody says tightrope walk. Mm Um. Since he aced it on his first time, he decided to do it a second time, but wilder. Oh. He tightroped across Niagara Falls several times in increasingly more absurd ways, like while wearing arm and leg shackles, mm. riding a unicycle, and pushing a wheelbarrow. Oh. He really upped the ante in August of that year when he, tight- he walked a tightrope over the falls while carrying his manager on his back. <laughs> and that manager must have been up for anything because there is no way that's wild yes it is like can you imagine like your client comes to you and it's like okay listen i know we've been getting a lot of press for this other stuff i don't really know like what the next move is unless you let me carry you over niagara falls on a tightrope and you're on my back like well that manager was clearly a salesman oh yeah he was he was uh he was he was willing to get his feet wet I mean, very literally. literally yeah terrible like i just i mean do you guy but if you're thinking that's the most cuckoo nuts thing you've ever heard allow me to turn it up to 11 for just a second by throwing maria Spelterina's hat in the ring she did her own tightrope crossing eight years later but skipped over the part where she pretended to be normal at all and she did her walk while wearing wicker baskets for shoes and with a paper bag over her head wow yeah just (laughs) balls out whacking us straight out of the gate for miss maria yeah as far as i could find that's the only time she's ever crossed but like i mean obviously because how would you top that yeah wicker baskets for shoes and a bag over your head you can't see what you're doing like you can't you don't have the dexterousness of your feet like yeah but she survived crazy got across just fine now it wasn't until 1885 that niagara falls became a national park so All that to say, it's been a very, very popular locale for stunts since before it was even like a proper tourist destination. So although there have been a lot of stunt performers who've tightroped across the falls, there's only been one who was unsuccessful in his crossing. Okay. Ontario native Stephen Peer was 19 years old when he witnessed the Great Blondin's crossing and decided that daredevilry was what he wanted to do with his life. A few years later, in 1873, he became an apprentice to Henry Bellini, certified mad lad. (laughs) Bellini's big thing was combining a tightrope walk with a dive into the water below. He did three of these dives in the year that Pierre came to study under him. 
Pierre's main job was securing the rope before these performances, but he started to get impatient to try it out for himself and ended up doing an unauthorized crossing with Bellini's equipment. Oh, no. Bellini was so pissed off about this that he literally tried to cut the rope while Pierre was still crossing. What? Uh-huh. But you thought. Uh-huh. No, no. But for that, he was disgraced and basically run out of town. Pierre kept at it, though, and became a famous tightrope walker in his own right. He liked to do double crossings where he'd go from the Canadian side to the American side, then turn around and go right back to Canada. That is until the summer of 1887 when his body was found on the banks of the Niagara River near the base of the falls. It's assumed that he tried an unscheduled crossing when he'd been out drinking all night and gravity had done its thing. Oh, man. Yeah. Nobody actually knows for sure what caused the fall, but he had been spotted that night out tying one on. Ugh. So, yeah. So he just kind of did it without an audience. Yeah. I mean, he might have had friends watching or something, but it wasn't like a, a planned stunt. Yeah. Okay. Yep. He'd been at it for 15 years by that point. So people were pretty shocked. Yeah. That he didn't make it across. The only thing we know for sure is that there were no issues with his equipment, considering that another stunt performer, Samuel Dixon, made several successful crossings using that same equipment he'd inherited from Pierre. I imagine, though, that when you think about people going over Niagara Falls, you're picturing people in giant barrels. And that did become the more popular waterfall-based stunt around this time. To date, 16 people have gone over the falls in a barrel and 11 of them have survived it. How Stuff Works explains that while some people spent their entire life savings constructing their barrels, making sure they were well padded on the inside and that the outer structure would survive the 180 foot drop, other people just kind of hopped into whatever floating structure they felt like and hoped for the best. Uh huh. Now, what sort of person do you picture attempting this? Um, extravagant, uh, people who, uh, show offs perhaps maybe, um, well, obviously stuntmen come to mind. Yeah. Maybe local, local legends, people who make a name for themselves or want to make a name for themselves. Um, the clergy <laughs> perhaps. Okay. So. Would you say that you would ever picture like a 63-year-old widowed school teacher who tested her barrel by sending her cat over it first? Oh, yeah. you know, I was just about to say that, but I <laughs> thought the cat part would be a little ludicrous, so right. I pulled it back. Oh, but, no. Wow. That's exactly what Annie Edson Taylor did. Two days before her own ride over the falls, she put her cat in her barrel to test it. The cat survived. She thought, all right, let's go. 63-year-old school teacher. Widowed school teacher, yeah. She was... This would be a a good idea. A good use of her time. Yep. She was actually the first person to go over the barrel, or to go over the falls in a barrel, rather, and she survived. All the way back in 1901. This is crazy. Yes, it is. Any idea why she decided to do this? What prompted her? She needed money. Oh, this was a this was a stunt. She, yeah, it, I mean, it was a stunt. It was she was thinking this is going to make me famous, and I'll be able to do all these speaking gigs, and people want to interview me, and all this and that. Okay. So, yep, she did it for money. Okay. She was actually pulled from her barrel relatively unharmed. Why? For the first person who ever did this, like she came out of the barrel, she was pretty much fine. 
Uh, but she told the press, if it was with my dying breath, I would caution anyone against attempting the feat. I would sooner walk up to the mouth of a cannon knowing it was going to blow me to pieces than make another trip over the falls. Jesus. Uh-huh. <laughs> so she didn't have a good time, well, but she did it. Well, clearly, I mean, I, I one can only assume you hear about this 63-year-old school teacher <laughs> who goes over and her cat. And her cat. And uh, unscathed, then you think, well... If, if she, she can, can do, do it. it. <laughs> exactly. So despite her warning, and probably for that exact reason, about 10 years later, a stunt performer from the Barnum and Bailey Circus replicated her stunt, mm. though his barrel was made entirely of metal. Now, he also survived, but where Annie only had a small gash on her forehead, Bobby Leach ended up spending six months recovering in the hospital. He broke his jaw and both of his kneecaps, uh, among other smaller injuries. Banging around in there like a... A solid metal barrel? Yeah. Like, what's up, Bobby? Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. Smashed him to bits. A few years later, in 1920, British daredevil Charles Stevens, a.k.a. the Demon Barber of Bedminster... Oh, the very same. The very same. Went over the falls in a 600-pound oak barrel that was smashed to smithereens on impact with the water Ooh. below. Between the ballast and the force of the rapids, his body was torn apart and only his arm was ever recovered from the river. Ugh. Yeah. One of the most interesting people I came across in my research was World War I veteran Red Hill Sr., he was a certified Niagara daredevil who was actually born and raised in Niagara Falls, Ontario. Having grown up in the area, he was obsessed with the falls his whole life. There were many, many times when he skipped school so that he could go throw things in the river and watch them go over the side of the falls. <laughs> he was also known for his incredible bravery. He was awarded a medal at nine years old for running into a burning building to save his sister and went on to gain recognition as a local hero when he saved 28 lives and recovered 117 bodies, all related to incidents at Niagara Falls. Wow. He actually saved Bobby Leach from his trip over the falls in his metal barrel. What's more, he's actually been awarded more life-saving accolades than anyone else in Canadian history. Wow. Brave dude. Yeah. So in 1930, he decided he was going to conquer the rapids at the base of the waterfall in a six-foot-long steel barrel, similar to ones used by over-the-falls daredevils in the past. What's interesting about his, though, was that there was a harness system on the inside of the barrel that would prevent him from ever coming into contact with the sides. So it was a six foot long barrel. So well, whenever I think about the barrel and probably people listening too, unless you've seen it and it's different is it's like oh, it's like a, a whiskey barrel. Right. And you just kind of get in there with your knees up to your <laughs> shoulders. Right. And then, you, and then you hope for the best. But this is, he, he's clearly standing up, right? More or less, yeah. And I mean, and this one specifically, he's in a harness. But yeah, most of these barrels were like, you you weren't crouched down in them. You were kind of, you could stand up. Like when you go, like if you visit Niagara Falls, they have, you know, of course, visitor center and they have some of these barrels still preserved. Like okay. you can actually see what they look like. They just they kind of look like iron lungs honestly mm, okay pretty similar to that yeah so he basically his whole thing was he didn't want to end up in the hospital for six months like bobby because he's the one who pulled him out of the water and saw how messed up he was sure so the harness system kept him from like it kind of held him in place it's almost like 
a zero gravity situation he's created for himself mm. where he's not going to move around too much. He's not really going to touch the sides. Another noteworthy feature of his barrel was that he had William Red Hill, master hero of Niagara, painted on both sides in huge letters. <laughs> so he, Not what you would call a humble man. Well, clearly another showman. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Even though his big thing was like rescuing people, he was very showy about it. Sure. You know? yeah. It ended up taking him five hours to get from Niagara to his destination in Queenston, about six miles away. For most of that time, he was trapped in a vortex in the whirlpool not far from the base of the falls. Oh, no. For something like three hours, several of his friends were working to get him going again. So he's just in this vortex, like spinning and spinning and spinning, like rapidly for three hours. Yeah. Uh Uh Uh-huh. It's just, it's a nightmare. Still, the harness worked. Even though he was trapped in a freaking vortex for hours on end, he left the barrel with only a few minor bruises. That is incredible. It really is. Not to mention, if he was underwater this whole time, he didn't run out of air. No, and they were, um, if I'm remembering right, he had drilled holes on either end of the barrel, like air holes, that they were plugged up with corks. So if he needed air, he would just pull one of the corks out and get some air and you let the carbon dioxide out, you know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> you pull one, water comes in, nope. Yep, other end. Gotta wait. <laughs> He ended up repeating this stunt three more times before his death at the age of 54. Now, with him dying so young, you might be tempted to think that it was a result of a stunt gone wrong. But actually, Red was a hero going all the way back to his service during World War I. And what ended up killing him were the residual effects of the gassing of his platoon in France more than 40 years earlier. I see. Crazy. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. That's not where his story ends, though. Because his son, Red Jr., decided to follow in his papa's footsteps. Mm. And supposedly he was doing this to honor his father, although a lot of people feel like he was just sick of living in dad's shadow and wanted to make a name for himself, which is hard when you have the exact same name. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, His aims were higher, though. I'll give him that. And they were more in line with what I was supposed to be talking about today. Red Jr. wanted to do the thing his father never even dared to consider. He was going to go over the falls, not ride the rapids below them. Yeah. The problem here, or at least one of the problems, is that Jr. couldn't afford to build one of those massive barrels. Instead, he devised a cylindrical raft made from a bunch of inner tubes that he tied together with fishing nets, and he called it the thing. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Kind of unsurprisingly, the falling water at the base of the falls ripped that thing apart and Junior's body wasn't recovered until the next day. Hmm. After that, it became illegal in both Canada and America for anyone to attempt to go over Niagara Falls. Yeah. Good call. Yeah. Of course, that didn't necessarily stop many people. One such person was 30-year-old Nathan Boya, who survived a trip over the falls in July of 1961 in a massive rubber ball he called the Plungosphere. (laughs) (laughs) When was this? 1961. Okay. Mm -hmm. Unlike everyone else on the list so far, Nathan wasn't out for fame and glory when he attempted the stunt. Rather, he said he felt it was just something he had to do. He just felt compelled, had to do it. Didn't tell anybody he was going to do it except some of his friends, and he just went for it. Okay. I mean, I, I would thought he would want to sell the plugosphere. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this was a good way to do it, but hey. No. 
nope just just for the heck of it that being said he was very prepared though to make this trip he really thought it through he took a 30-hour oxygen tank and a carbon dioxide neutralizer with him when he realized that being stuck in an airtight rubber ball was going to be pretty bad for his respiratory system yeah on the big day he went over the falls the ball bounced once on the rocks below and then he was pulled out by friends of his totally unharmed that's incredible yes it is now, for his trouble, he received a $100 fine for violating the ban, and he also had to pay court costs to the whopping tune of $13. Ooh, is that, is that adjusted? No. Oh, man. So it, it was probably more like 50 bucks in oh, today's gosh. money. Yeah, I know. Not worth it. No. Well, all in all, I feel like he probably thought it was, because that was his, he felt compelled, had to do it. Well, he was, he was, he's probably the, the, uh, the man who invented, went on to invent or at least inspire those big rubber spheres that people. Yeah. The Zorbies, the clear ones you can yeah. like roll down a mountain and stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was probably Nathan Boya for sure. Well, good I mean, for him. yeah. Bless him. Bless his heart. No other stunt attempts were made until the 1980s when the folks started coming out of the woodworks to barrel ride Niagara Falls. The 80s were wild. Everybody was on cocaine. I mean, what do you expect? There must have been something like a, like a, a television show, <laughs> Quantum Leap or something. <laughs> Everybody was like, oh, this sounds fun. Uh-huh. So six people actually completed this stunt between the years 1981 and 1995, with two of them successfully doing it twice. There were two other men who attempted to go over the falls during that time frame, but neither of them did so from the relative safety of a massive barrel. The first of these attempts was made by Jesse Sharp, who was trying to make a name for himself as a stunt performer by going over the falls in a kayak while his friends videotaped the whole thing from the sidelines. Kayak. It's worth noting that this was not long before Bam Margera started making the CKY stunt videos. So I'm not saying this is a proto-jackass stunt, but I'm not not saying that either. Yeah. To that end, because Jesse wanted to be sure he would be recognizable on the tape, he declined to wear a helmet. Mm. He also didn't want to wear a life vest because he thought that would make it harder for him to get out of the kayak if he needed to. So, so just tell me what happened. Well, I will say he was so confident that he had made dinner reservations for immediately afterwards. Okay. He didn't really make those reservations, though. Yeah. Sadly, his body was never recovered. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 less jackass, more dumbass. That's fair, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, but get this one, though, because if you thought go over in a kayak was like buck wild, the second unsuccessful attempt in the 90s was made by Robert Overacker, who graduated from a stunt school in California and decided to raise awareness for the homelessness crisis, a noble cause, by going over Niagara Falls on a jet ski. Oh, so a little more speed. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. The plan was as soon as he went over, you know, he'd let go of the jet ski and he would activate his rocket-powered parachute and float gently to safety. Oh. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, you know, Interesting idea. Interesting idea that didn't work out at all. Ah. With one of the contributing factors being that the parachute simply didn't open. That's a big problem. That's a big problem because I was reading that like from that height, 180 feet, you're hitting the water. It's like you're hitting concrete. Uh, yeah. You are destroyed by that fall. Well, especially if it's like 
destroying barrels. Yeah. As well. Think about what's going to do to a human body. Mm-hmm. Only one person has gone over the falls on purpose for a goof in the 21st century, and his name is Kirk Jones. While visiting the falls in 2003, now let me let me pause for a second. So we were just talking about going over in a kayak, no helmet, not so. Yeah, going over with a jetpack and a, a jet ski, not so. Yeah. Okay, so just hold that in your mind. So while visiting the falls in 2003 at the age of 40, Kirk decided to hop the railing and jump in the river for a laugh. He was there with some of his buddies and they were good and drunk. And he thought, hey, wouldn't it be hilarious if I just went over Niagara Falls? No barrel, no helmet, nothing. Just in the water in his regular old clothes, seemingly on a whim because he was drunk and he survived. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. That's what's so wild about it. He freaking survived going over just t-shirt and jeans, drunk as hell. Yeah. Giggling with his friends. Well, I mean, it's, uh, I guess because so many people go over and perish, mm-hmm. it's bound to happen that someone might just get in there the right, the right angle or, yeah. or something and just make it out. Did he, was he injured? I'm sure he was um, that I didn't find any information about like grave injuries or anything, okay. but I know like I've heard before, like if you're drunk and you get hit by a train or you're in a car accident or something, you're more likely to be okay because you don't tense up. Like you don't have your reaction is really slowed. And a lot of uh, the injuries <laughs> caused in an accident. Like when I was hit a few years ago, I my whole body tightened up because you're preparing for the impact. Right. Yeah, yeah. And to this day, I'm still having problems from it because my muscles tightened up and then I got slammed by this other car. But when you're drunk, you don't have that quick of a reaction. So you're just kind of like, like just kind of jellyfish and hanging out there. And a lot of people have survived being hit by like trains and stuff because they were drunk. We're not doctors. We don't exactly <laughs> know, but, um, mm-hmm. I'm glad he survived. Yeah. Yeah. What's uh, <laughs> kind of a bummer about it, though, is that his friends were supposed to have recorded it. Oh. And none of them were sober enough at the time to be able to operate the recorder. <laughs> like, how mad would you be? <laughs> how mad would you be? You, you go to a party and you tell this story and people are like, yeah, whatever, dude. Uh-huh. Show me the recording. Yeah, it's 2003. We have video cameras. Like, stop lying, Kirk. Yeah. 14 years later, he returned to do it bigger and better. Similar to Nathan Boya, he had come up with a giant rubber ball type contraption. But it actually proved to be less protective than jeans and a t-shirt. Kirk's body was recovered approximately six weeks later near the mouth of Lake Ontario over 12 miles downstream from the falls. Oh, Kirk. Oh, Kirk. R.I.P. Too rad for this world. Apparently. He should have stopped while he was... Well, he was ahead. I wonder if he was maybe sober the second time, and that was the problem. Well, he 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 invented a rubber ball, the the plastosphere two point <laughs> the plungosphere, the plungosphere. Don't disrespect Nathan Boya's incredible invention. The plungosphere two <laughs> bigger and better, but not no. Unfortunately for me and you and everyone listening, that's the most recent story of a daredevil attempting to conquer Niagara Falls. So the story ends on a pretty bummer note. Although it's worth pointing out that most people who have gone over on purpose have survived. Still, 
I don't want to end on a low note, so I have a super fun fact for you that's deliciously historical about Mm. Niagara Falls. Okay. Did you know that the first time alternating current electricity was ever transmitted over a long distance was at Niagara Falls? No. Friend of the podcast, Nikola Tesla, set up the first hydroelectric power plant at Niagara Falls and was able to use his alternating current to send that electricity all the way to Buffalo, New York on November 16th, 1896. Now, this was still, and if you've seen The Prestige, obviously this is covered, uh, or if you know about the history of electricity because you're a nerd. Um, At the time, there was this big competition. Is it going to be alternating current or direct current? Which direct current was um, history's villain, Thomas Edison. And at the time, most people were using the direct current because they thought it was a lot safer. But it could only go, I think, the farthest direct current could travel was like 100 feet. But Tesla got it all the way from Niagara Falls, Ontario to Buffalo, New York. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. It is. And when later asked to describe his achievement, Tesla said, no, I just, I love this. So buckle up. We have many a monument of past ages. We have the palaces and pyramids, the temples of the Greek and the cathedrals of Christendom. In them is exemplified the power of man, the greatness of nations, the love of art and religious devotion. But the monument at Niagara has something of its own, more in accord with our present thoughts and tendencies. It is a monument worthy of our scientific age, a true monument of enlightenment and of peace. It signifies the subjugation of natural forces to the service of man, the discontinuance of barbarous methods, the relieving of millions from want and suffering. And that's Niagara Falls, folks. Wow. Wow. I got chills reading that. I love him so much. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about a showman. No kidding. Well, thanks for checking us out and giving us a little bit of your time today. Hopefully you enjoyed that story. And if you did, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. You can also check us out on Instagram and Twitter at FantasticHPod. Or you can write to us at FantasticHistoryPod at gmail.com to tell me how much you love Nikola Tesla and how you die for us to give him his own episode. Until next time. Bye.